listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Hey, Real Life. Uh, we are in the middle of this sermon series on influence, what it means to be an influencer, how to influence reflections on influence. Uh, I remember Josh asking me if I would preach this week. Our family is preparing. We're still on schedule to to move, and, and we're on our way out of here to Ohio here in just a few weeks. Um, but I remember him asking me if I would preach uh, during this time and just do a message he said on on whatever it is that you hope to leave behind. Like after a decade here, what do you hope you have done? What do you hope, what kind of difference, what kind of, and it felt appropriate later when we discovered that this series would be influence, that what I'd be able to do here is really reflect on my own influence. What I hope is true of the influence that I've been able to, hopefully after just over 10 years here on the Palouse, uh, leave behind. And um, it, it's fitting for some other reasons. We are doing a, some of you may know Mary Jean and Jeremy Inman. Uh, they're part of our lifer family over in Pullman. And um, when they got back from Ethiopia, they did some mission work in Ethiopia. When they got back, they started something called the Family Culture Project. And our family's been working through that. I remember uh, my wife coming to me and suggesting, Becky said she thought it would be a great thing to do before we headed out and went east and moved our family across the country. What if we spent some time doing this project together as a family? And uh, I love it when wives and moms speak wisdom like that into our family, which uh, it's Mother's Day today. So a great reflection. Thank you to all you moms out there that make a difference in that way. I know uh, that was one uh, one of a million examples of the way that um, our mom my wife, my children's mother, has made a big difference for us just this year. But uh, we started that project. And one of the things that Mary Jean and Jeremy are, are doing with that project is they are trying to lead you through different phases of just intentional planning, intentional reflection, intentional um, just exploration emotionally, uh, mentally, um, to, to think about who you are as a family and the kind of culture that you're building. And so part of what you do at the beginning is you go through a, a vision phase and you craft what they call family values and they invite you to put them on a poster. And so we have these family values that we've created. We say them before dinner every single night. Uh, we worship is our first family value. Uh, we bring hope is number two. We create memories is number three. Uh, number four is um, we go all in. And then this last family value that we have uh, says we are individuals. And what we meant by that is that each one of us in our family, all four of us, mom and dad and Abigail and Ezekiel, we're all different. We're all unique. And we all bring something together as one family unit. We as individuals bring something to the table. And and my daughter, she is a a person of character. That was her identification. My son, he's an achiever. Uh, my wife is an empath. We said, and then the, the, the word for me you'll find on our poster is that dad is an influencer. I'm an influencer. Uh, part of the way we were able to come up with those identifications is we've journeyed through a lot of those personality assessments. I'm sure many of you have engaged in things like the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or the myriad of other disc profiles and all kinds of things where it identifies kind of who you are and how you're wired. Um, my wife and I, because of our involvement in the ministry, have been able to do enough of those that we feel like we have a really good grasp on who it is that we are and how we're designed. I, I remember one assessment I, I got to do here with the team at the church a few years ago, 
um, we spent a weekend, and when the weekend was done, one of the things we had, we had done was we had crafted our personal mission statement, our personal mission statement, like why God had put us here on this earth. And the, the mission statement that, I, that came out of that weekend for me, my personal mission statement, was that I must creatively inspire others with the truth. I must creatively inspire others with the truth. If you know me, I would imagine that you would resonate with that description of who I am and what I love to do and the way that I make a difference in the world. That's why God has put me here, to creatively inspire others with the truth. So as I sit here during this sermon series, reflecting on what is the influence that I hope that I've been able to leave behind, I I wanted to talk about those three things. Uh, I'll I'll put them in a different order, but I wanted to talk about... uh, when I think about creatively inspiring others with the truth, I want to talk about truth, I want to talk about creativity, and I want to talk about inspiration. When we think about influence, uh, I want to talk about those three ideas. It's what I hope that I've left behind. And I know that we all influence in wildly different ways. Uh, Probably hardly anybody will influence their world and the world around them uh, the same way that I'm going to influence my world. And yet a lot of the things, a lot of the traits, a lot of the principles of influence probably apply uh, across the board. And so I, I hope that these same reflections will find some application for you as well. But the first thing I want to talk about is I want to talk about truth. I want to talk about truth. Uh, one of my greatest passions and one of the things that I hope that I get to leave behind, an influence that I hope I've had on this place here at Real Life on the Palouse here in Moscow, uh, is the idea of my, my passion for truth, my passion for the scriptures, my passion for the Bible. Uh, bad readings of the Bible matter. Uh, that's been one of my greatest passions that I've wanted, a conviction of mine I've wanted to pass along. Bad readings of the Bible make a difference. At their best, they mislead, they misguide, they confuse, they're problematic. At their worst, bad readings of the Bible uh, are destructive. They hurt people. Um, people have used the Bible for ages to marginalize, to exclude, uh, to take advantage of, to oppress, to conquer. Bad readings of the Bible matter. And part of the reason why we have that struggle, part of the reason that there is so much bad reading of the scriptures in our world, um, I feel like in large part is these movements, these churches, our faith traditions, they're led by Uh, these people that are trained at at Bible college or seminaries, and that's a good thing. We should definitely not abandon that idea. But they're trained, and through that process, uh, I had the opportunity to experience as well. Somewhere in the midst of that, you are are subtly, uh, it's communicated to you, this is what the Bible says. This is this is the theology. This is the picture. This is, this is, this is, we have at some point, and many of our traditions go back to some favorite hero, whether it's the reformers and John Calvin or Martin Luther, or, or whether we go back to Augustine or Athanasius or John Wesley, or we look back in history and we think that was kind of the golden age. That was the day where we really figured out what the Bible had to say. And what ends up happening is we begin, once we know what the Bible says, once we have mastered the Bible, 
we now go to the scriptures and we preach from it and we teach from it and we lead from the scriptures using the scriptures as a tool for our ends because we have mastered the text. And one of the things that I've wanted to invest in and show us over and over again is that the text, we don't master the text. The text wants to master us. Uh, that we would come to the scriptures not already understanding what it is the scriptures have to say, but with a wide-eyed wonder, with all kinds of questions of what does the text want to teach me? Because the scriptures want to provoke. They want to challenge. They want to transform. God wants to use the scriptures to change us. And yet we typically use the scriptures to try to change others. And so to, to change that posture, truth, I'm passionate about Truth And part of what I believe about truth is that truth is actually not about the answers at all. Truth has very little in my mind to do with the answers. Truth has to do with the right questions. And so part of the influence that I hope to leave behind here is to teach us how to ask better questions, not just have better answers. Uh, And part of the reason that I believe that is because I believe that the power doesn't lie in an abstract, platonic, Greek concept of truth, but the power lies in the words themselves. One of my favorite passages I've committed to memory comes out of Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, God says, through Isaiah, God says, as the rain and the snow falls from the heavens and does not return to it without watering the earth, causing it to bud and to flourish, providing seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So my word, God says, goes forth from my mouth It does not return to me empty. It will always accomplish its purpose and the desire for which I sent it. God says his words never come back void. Our words, our logic, our dogma, our doctrine, our systematic theology, that's really not all that powerful. But God's scriptures, they are. And so if we keep going back to the text, if we keep going back to the word, if we realize that truth is not in figuring the text out, not in mastering the text, but the truth is found in letting God master us through his text. That's one of my great passions. Next thing I want to talk about is creativity. Uh, I, I believe God loves creativity. Obviously, God, the creator, making us many creatures uh, with, with loads of our own creativity to kind of join him, to partner with him in this creative work as little maybe mini creators, if you will, under his gigantic umbrella of creator, uh, creativity. I think God loves creativity. One of my favorite passages to talk about this comes out of Ezekiel 4. Ezekiel 4, starting in verse 9, uh, we read this. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt. Put them into a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food to each each day, to eat each day and eat it at set times. Also measure out a sixth of a hen of water and drink it at set times. So God is giving Ezekiel like instructions Ezekiel's being a prophet. Ezekiel's a a preacher, a prophet, a teacher, and he's using his life. He's teaching through like guerrilla theater, like this rogue theater act, drama. And through his life, 
Ezekiel is teaching a message. He's not just writing a blog post with three points that all start with the same letter. He, he's, he's really engaging the audience in a provocative way. But listen to what God says. Take all this food. Eat it as you would a barley cake. Bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement as fuel. The Lord said in this way, the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I drive them. Then I said, not so, sovereign Lord. Ezekiel doesn't think this is a very good idea. I have never defiled myself from my youth until now. I have never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. No unclean meat has ever entered my mouth. Very well, he said. I will let you bake your bread over cow manure instead of human excrement. Not a passage I've heard too many sermons on, but I love it because of God's commitment to creativity, to provocative engagement with the audience. This is not just about communicating true, like some abstract truth. This is about, here's the thing that I believe about the, what we do here in church. I heard a teacher say this once. What we do here in our faith traditions, what we do in discipleship, what we do in home groups, what we talk about in our relationships, our, our faith-based relationships, our intentional relationships, these are the most meaningful, most profound things in the human experience. To talk about God and the divine, to talk about forgiveness, mercy, generosity, compassion, peacemaking. These are profound truths. These are not just shallow, like, oh yeah, we often make them shallow. We often treat them as trivial, shallow, but these are deeply meaningful things. Like, the great meaning and purpose for, for thousands of years, people have been trying to grapple with meaning and purpose. These are things that matter. How dare we make them boring? One of my passions has been creativity, to do things in new ways and to talk about things in ways that matter, in ways that provoke, in ways that change and challenge, and in ways that God can use to transform us. To not just have to go through the motions and do the things that need to, these things are, should be deeply moving. Which leads me to kind of my final thought, and that's the thought of inspiration. Inspiration. I, uh, my personal mission statement, I must creatively inspire people with the truth. Like, like the whole reason that we would devote ourselves to creativity, the whole reason that we would remember that these things matter is to provoke us, to inspire us, to actually engage the project of God, to partner with him in new ways. The story that I love to go to for this is the story that we all know super well. We know it too well, actually. We stop listening when we hear it. It's the story of David and Goliath. It shows up in 1 Samuel 17, and I'm not going to read it here uh, for, the, for, for the sake of brevity today, but go find it. Spend time in the scriptures asking good questions, as I just spoke of a moment ago, in 1 Samuel 17. But we've heard this story before, that the, the Israelites have gone out led by King Shaul, we say Saul, and Saul has taken the Israelites and they've drawn up battle lines against the Philistine, the Philistines. And on one side of the valley, every day for 40 days, 
For 40 days, every day, the Israelites draw up their battle lines on one side of the valley, and on the other side of the valley, the Philistines draw their battle lines, and they send out their champion, Goliath, Goliath, this nine-foot-tall giant. And every day, for 40 days, at their hours of prayer, their hour of sacrifice, where they're, they're, they're supposed to be turning their minds and their thoughts to God, Goliath steps out and taunts the God of Israel, taunts the Israelites, challenges them for 40 days, and Saul sits in his tent up on the hill. And so God seems to work through circumstances, and Jesse sends his son David, David, this probably, a historically speaking, probably a super young child, eight, nine years old, out from shepherding the flock. And he sends him to the front lines to, to take the big brothers some food. The ones who are old enough to be soldiers, the ones who have gone out to do, uh, you know, man's work. And David, this runt, is being sent out to, to, to run an errand. And he shows up, and of course, he observes the, he observes the situation. And, and, and he's just kind of aghast, long story short. And goes, he asks the people standing around him, how, how long has this been happening? And, and what does the king said is going to happen? And we're just going to let this uncircumcised Philistine taunt the God of angel armies? He ends up in front of Saul, and Saul kind of mocks this probably young kid. What are you going to do? David responds very cheeky. He says, well, Saul, I, I, I may only be a shepherd, but I know what it means to keep my sheep. What have you been doing here, Saul, sitting in your tent doing nothing? David says, if nobody else is going to do anything, I, I'll go do something. Like, I, I can remember um, my teacher in the Middle East teaching me in Israel uh, about how he learned from the Bedouins that a shepherd boy, a typical shepherd boy, probably throws one to 2,000 stones a day. It's just part of what he does as he leads sheep or even wastes time, just hundreds, thousands of stones, just throwing them, usually with a sling, many times with a sling. David says, uh, I'm no super slinger, but I've got a sling and I'm willing to put it to work if if nobody else is going to, if for 40 days we're just going to stand here and do nothing, I'll go put a stone in the air. And so, of course, David marches down the hill, and we know the story. He takes a stone, and, and he falls, the giant. And uh, we all know that part of the story. What we often sometimes don't know is the backstory. And there's all kinds of backstory. I want to focus on just one part of the backstory here that I find super relevant for this topic. We know that Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin, this great king who sits in his tent on the top of the hill, having drawn up battle lines. We know he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Well, we've, we've met Benjamin in multiple places throughout the story, but one of the last places, right before 1 Samuel, we saw Benjamin at the end of the book of Judges. And Benjamin uh, was being attacked by all kinds of people, and there's a long story behind that, but but this one little small tribe of Benjamin ends up outlasting thousands upon thousands of people called out against them. And one of the reasons that we're told that they're able to do this is because they have 700 left-handed slingers that can hit a straw with a stone. We actually have an extra biblical reference that might be exaggerated that says that these super sniper slingers of Benjamin, these left-handed sniper slingers, were able to hit a straw at a hundred yards with a sling. Saul 
is from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I don't know if Saul's super good with a sling or not, but I can tell you that the original reader hearing or reading this story that sees David marching down the hill with his sling immediately knows it's not supposed to be David. David is not the most qualified. David is not the most trained. David is not the most educated. David's not the one who's supposed to be great with a sling. Saul is. This is supposed to be Saul's job. And yet Saul, no matter how qualified, no matter how trained, for all we know, Saul could have been the best slinger the world had ever seen, wouldn't have made a difference because he sits in his tent, unwilling to put a stone in the air. And here's David, not the most qualified, not the most educated, not the one who's even supposed to be down there, but he's willing to do what he can. And God can use a stone in the air a thousand times over, a stone that never leaves its pocket. And so as I think about inspiration, one of the things that I've always wanted to inspire God's people to do, no matter where I go or what I do, is inspire people to throw their stone to to do what it is that God's made them to do, provoking them to do, prodding them to do, to throw their stone. Because God can do nothing with the person who just wants to sit in their tent. And even now in the midst of quarantine, even now in the season that we're in right now, there are still stones to be thrown. Stones to be thrown over Zoom or an internet connection. Stones to be thrown over a phone call. Stones to be thrown. I just was listening. I was on a phone uh, this morning with somebody from Georgia talking about his son. His son is my age, but was in a motorcycle accident and has some brain damage. Uh, is not fully functioning. And yet he has this job at Chick-fil-A, um, usually cleaning the dining room. Well, the dining room is closed right now. And so his son has decided to go into work every single day for a couple hours and hand write notes of encouragement to put on all the drive through order bags. A, a, a brain-damaged throwing his stone. There are still stones to be thrown. And by that, I don't mean just do more. We don't need to do more. I loved JT's message last week. I hope there are so many apples that you are not putting back in your cart. Because one of the things that I think we're all learning, if we're paying attention at all, is how much bruised, battered, damaged, poisoned apples that we were just kept consuming because we were just convinced that we had to, and we don't. So I'm certainly not saying just go do more. I hope that throwing your stone actually gives you clarity on how to do less, how to do less. And just one final thought, as I reflect on JT's message from last week, I know uh, one of the perspectives that has been shared, and I found it valuable. Um, I know as JT talks about the angst of quarantine, and he did such a good job addressing that, um, I, I know that ministered to many of us. It did to me. It spoke to the situation that I found myself in. There's a reaction, though, from maybe another demographic that I have heard often, this idea that, oh, you silly millennials. You silly millennials and the stuff that, that you, you've never had to go through. 
Our generation has, and that's beautiful, and I honor that, and I thank you for teaching us about perseverance and showing up and just doing the job and how perseverance, you're going to make it through and you have this resolute. And yet I also want to challenge us. There are an awful lot of soldiers that showed up in the David and Goliath story and did their job and persevered and showed up and obeyed orders and drew up battle lines every single day for 40 days. And sometimes just showing up and persevering is not the same thing as throwing your stone. So my prayer would be that we would be challenged, that we would be provoked by the things that God wants to do during this time. Uh, If you want to gather your elements, uh, we'll spend some time at the Lord's table here in our homes, in our living rooms, with our families, by ourselves. Uh, I think about that Last Supper, and I think about these three ideas. I, I think about truth. And I think about how Jesus, after three years of teaching his disciples how to get rid of bad readings of the Bible. I think of a few weeks ago when Josh talked to us about uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus and how Jesus, after his resurrection, still has to instruct his disciples on bad readings of the Bible. He has to start, you remember, a few weeks ago, he has to start from the very beginning and teach them all throughout the scriptures about, about the Christ. Like truth, matters. What Jesus does that night with bread and juice matters. It's also filled with creativity. Jesus taking one of the most thunderous moments of the Jewish experience, the Passover Seder meal, uh, the story of their deliverance, and creatively, provocatively, in a way that will change the course of human history, because here we sit with bread and here we sit with juice, the creativity of that moment. But the inspiration which I'm sure felt different for those disciples that night in the upper room than it does for you and me in our living rooms this morning. But still, the inspiration, the call, the commission, the provoking, the provocation to go and show the world what God is like. So we'll remember that today. That night, Jesus took a piece of bread and he broke it. He, he gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's be inspired by Jesus this morning. And later in the meal, he took a cup and he passed it amongst his disciples. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. And whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. Father God, my prayer um, today is that you would lead us, you would guide us into, (laughs) we're told your Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. God, my my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would lead and guide us, not our belief statements, not our fantastic doctrine, not our seminary degrees or those who have seminary degrees, but that your Holy Spirit We're told in Ephesians, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God, my prayer is that your 
your spirit would lead us through your word to all truth. And that truth wouldn't look like a set of answers. That truth would look like a set of questions, reminding us that our hope, our hope does not lie in our beliefs. Our hope does not lie in our belief statements. Our hope does not lie in our answers. Our hope lies in you and you alone. God, I pray for creativity. I pray that you would, especially those artists and those creators amongst us, some of us that have been called in very special ways to create and to use their gifts. God, I pray that you would inspire them, that you would use them, and I pray that you would use them to inspire us. And I pray that through that process of creativity and inspiration, that you would have influence, that you would have influence through us influencing others and the way that you would have us do that. So God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your own creativity that you then give to us. We thank you for a story that inspires us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. It was a great time spending with you uh, today, and we thank you for joining us in this again, in this virtual digital space with us today. My prayer is that as you go or don't go, stay at home, whatever your going looks like today, as we go, as I go, as my family goes from the Palouse to our next chapter, I pray as you go to your next chapter, turn the next page, whatever your going looks like. I pray that you may be inspired, inspired to influence, that you would be inspired to be creative. May you be inspired to lead people to truth. That doesn't necessarily look like a list of answers, but may you be inspired to lead people to better questions. And may the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Have a good week. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.